0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: the evening, and tonight we are hosting a special Maryland primary election breakdown with a fantastic cast of panelists who have agreed to come on and talk about all about the election result. But first, I feel it appropriate to begin with a brief monologue about the tragic shooting that happened at the Capital Gazette. So I want to remember, I want to take tonight uh, and begin the show by remembering the five victims, the five Marylanders, the five friends, the moms, the dads, the aunts, the uncles, the husbands, the fathers, the mothers, the hardworking journalists, and the employers who were taken entirely too soon from us on Thursday afternoon after a gunman stormed the Annapolis offices of the Capital, Capital Gazette which, as we all know, is one of Maryland's best local newspapers. The victims were identified as Rob Hassan, 59, a former feature writer for the Baltimore Sun, who joined the Capital Gazette in 2010 as an assistant editor in columns. Wendy Winter, 65, a community correspondent who headed special publications. Gerald Fishman, 61, the editorial page editor. John McNamara, 56. Staff writer who had covered high school, college, and professional sports for decades, including a stint at my hometown newspaper, the Herald Mail. And then Rebecca Smith, 34, a sales assistant hired in November. There's no combination of words that could possibly or adequately express our grief or sorrow. We're all in mourning. We're shocked. It happened here on our home turf. In Marylanders, we stick together. We're angry without answers. But we're not going to be afraid. And we will not cower. Reporters, journalists, bloggers, citizen journalists alike, they will continue to report the news. And they're going to give millions, they're going to give voice to millions who are speechless. These journalists will continue on, empowering a representative democratic republic with facts and truth, and we'll continue to speak truth to power. We're not going to be deterred. You know, journalists are sometimes imperfect. Sometimes they have bias. Sometimes they make mistakes. And sometimes they may not live up to the ideals of the business. But those ideals are so pure and they're so beautiful to comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, spread knowledge, and then challenge beliefs. Please understand that this is not more of a tragedy than all the other tragedies, tragedies, just as it was people working at a newspaper this time lost first graders and second graders and teachers and principals and pastors and parishioners and people who were murdered for the crime of going to a Batman movie in Colorado on a Friday night. But the notion that journalists are anyone's enemy in America is also obscene, especially now that good journalism matters as much as it ever has. Rob Hassan mattered. Wendy Winters mattered. Gerald Fishman mattered. John McNamara mattered. Rebecca Smith mattered. They weren't enemies of the people. People who have lost loved ones and friends and shootings and the overwhelming majority of Americans. We want action. We don't want thoughts and prayers. We want more. So with that, I'm going to start the show, um, and to start out on a somber note, unfortunately, but I'm, I know that we can, we'll pick it up and things will be very interesting tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce all of our panelists. And we got... We have, a live, we have a lot of people that have called in, and I will say this. My, my very good friend Eric Beasley and I have done many of these panels before, and they seem to go swimmingly, I promise, and there's only a few ground rules. And if you're listening in, the only ground rules that I have is let's try not to talk one over one another. But with as many people as we have, sometimes it can be difficult. So I just ask that we take our time, if you have a point to make, interject it and make it and be pithy. And, and and sometimes say it with a little bit of brevity. Secondly, we're gonna have fun and we're gonna be fair. Always be fair. And then thirdly, I brought each of you panelists on because you have some type of personal investment. You're extremely knowledgeable about our political process here in Maryland. You have your candidate yourself. <laughs> you might be married to a candidate. You run a political party. You're an activist. You're an education activist. We all have an investment in the process, and there is no more knowledgeable people than this panel tonight. I can promise you that this panel is all-stars. They know Maryland politics inside and out. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce each one of them. I have Devin Ellis, who lives down here in Montgomery County. And let me just say this parenthetically, that, uh, friends, I'm I'm a Montgomery County resident. This is a top-heavy Montgomery County uh, pale. and it's okay because when there's 33 candidates on the ballot in an at-large race, we have to talk about. It. Secondly, I want to introduce Laura Stewart, uh, also from Montgomery County, and then of course we have um, Eric Beasley, who will be the rebel rouser tonight. I promise you. Um, I invited on um, Deborah Chuhu, so she's a Montgomery County resident. Then Dan Meyer, who is Mr. Maryland Politics, knows everything. Lives in Baltimore County, but also is here in Montgomery a lot. Knows our politics upside and down. Amy Frieder, who's practically my neighbor here in District 15, was a candidate herself in District 15. And then Bridget, Bridget, I'm going to butcher your name, so I'm just, I'm, it's okay. Um, it, it's Newta, right? Is that new to? how? Am I saying that right?
2: You got it exactly right. No butcher. Oh, my God.
1: That's if I can say your name right and Deborah's name. I apologize. I reached out to individual panelists prior to the show and has asked, How can I? I don't want to butcher your name, so you've got to spell it out. Tonight. So, with that, we have Deb, Laura, Eric, Deborah, Dan, Bridget, Amy, and myself, and we're going to have a hell of a night. So, panelists, welcome. And thank you for agreeing to do this. It's going to be a lot of fun. And as I said, be honest and be fair and just tell the truth about what the hell happened in this massive, massive primary. Let's start with Western Maryland. I grew up there. Hagerstown was my home turf. Eric easily knows more than anybody about there. So, Eric, I know you're with me. So let's start out with what happened. I, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to try to cover the state as best as we can. And panelists, the way this is going to work is I'm going to try my best to call on you and moderate it. But just jump in there, and if we're talking over one another, unfortunately, I'll have to say, all right, one at a time, but I have a feeling that we have a uh, pretty diligent panel. We're going to be able to get a feeling that even though this is radio, it's fine. Eric, Frederick County, you're still the Frederick County Republican chairman. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. <laughs> okay. All right. So as, as our as our in-house Republican, and as my wife is sitting upstairs, she goes, well, thank God we have one. Um so, yeah, look, uh, I'm going to
0: call at least three people communists before the show's over.
1: I okay, already made that right. promise. Okay, well, that's, that's er, fine.
3: Eric, uh, I have a countdown clock going for that.
1: <laughs> yes, okay. every time you say communist, <laughs> you're going to drink. Um, so, first off, Eric, welcome to the show. Um, mm-hmm. There's not much that happened up in Garrett County other than, um, and as I as I kind of go west onwards down and starting in the 6th District, um, the, the thing is, is that jealous Pretty much won all of Western Maryland. He won Garrett. He won Allegheny County. He won Washington County. He won Frederick, and then he won uh, Montgomery County. Surprisingly, you know, in Garrett County, Jealous took about 324 votes to return Baker. And the interesting, the interesting theme, and what I have noticed in the election results is it typically goes Jealous, Baker, and then and then Montgomery County. Of course, it was Madaleno who was third. But Chris Bignaraja was third in many of these, in many of these, in, 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 the, in the, uh, this, some of the counties, which is unique to me. But if we're looking at the 6th District, Eric, um, it looks like Trone pretty much dominated everywhere, except for Garrett County. He lost Garrett County and he lost Montgomery County, but not by a whole lot. So in Washington County, we'll get to that in a second. But Eric, as the, the Frederick County guy, there was a big county executive race. There were some county council races, and mm-hmm. Frederick is a bellwether county in the state of Maryland. What's going on in Frederick? Well, so I'd say the,
0: the – the, talking about the entire county, I think the biggest news, if you look at the election results, is that um, Republicans actually turned out less than Democrats. If you look at total turnout, um, there were 2,000 more Democrats that came out to vote than Republicans, and I think this is one of the first times that that's ever happened. Um we also have, uh, I mean, we had some interesting uh, races. For example, uh, County Councilman uh, Tony schmelick was unseated um, in the primary by uh, Steve McKay, um who's kind of running on, a, um, on a, 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 quote, smart growth platform, which is really, you know, just no growth. Um, and uh, we also had uh, um, Kathy O'Zalli took the county executive primary. Um, I, she was about 10 points ahead of uh, um, Kirby Delauder and then Regina uh, Williams was trailing in third. So uh um I think also what's probably some for some very important statewide news is that um, Craig Gian Grande did uh, um clean house in the State Senate District Three primary. Uh he took about seventy five percent of the vote roughly. Um so he will be facing Ron Young um in the general election. Um Ron Young also um performed pretty solidly against his uh opponents, uh, Jennifer Dowerty and uh, Jennifer Brannon.
1: Okay, so uh Kathy Abzali going into the general election against Jan Gardner. What's the possibility there? What is, what are we predicting? Is it going to be a Jan Gardner victory or is uh, Kathy Abzali? Does she have a chance?
0: Well, so we've got a, we've got a spoiler coming in our County Executive race. Um, There's actually a man named Earl Robbins who has gathered enough signatures to run for County Executive as an unaffiliated candidate. Now, reading the tea leaves as best I can, pretty much every single uh, Republican activist in this county has already said that they're going to support Earl Robbins. Um, I've seen posts on Facebook. Um, You know, I, the, the main thing that I'd say is if there was a time for an unaffiliated candidate to perform well, this is one of those races where if you, if you look at policies and platforms um, there's not a stark contrast between Kathy Avzali and Jan Gardner. And um, especially when it comes to like growth, um, that's a huge issue here in Frederick County and their growth platforms are, y- you could probably swap them out on each other's website and you wouldn't see a whole lot of difference. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, think the, the county executive
1: race is a solid three-way race um, that is going, that we have. Okay. Well, uh, Kathy Abzali, of course is a sitting Maryland state delegate and district four she served. She's been in the House of Delegates. First elected in 2010, and has gone on to be an absolutely horrid person. Um, and uh, big, uh, it, it's true. I mean, there's there's nothing. Most politicians have some redeeming quality. Other than Kathy Abzali has long been in Middletown for far too long, and hopefully somebody relegates her back to Middletown. Um, in the fall, because electing Kathy Azalee would be a big mistake. Right, Eric? Well, I,
0: here's the biggest thing. So I, I'm I'm not speaking of my own personal opinion here, um, but I can tell you from from, speak, from hearing from people in and around the county, um, I think that Kathy Azalee is going to have a big problem with mobilizing the Republican base, and especially the volunteer base. Um, she may be able to raise funds from out of state out of county um, in order to fund her campaign. But as far as like um, boots on the ground, people who are willing to actively campaign for her, um, I think she's going to come up pretty short. And mm-hmm. when you have somebody like Jan Gardner, who's basically take all the time off from her, her, her County executive position, as she wants, Jan Gardner can go out and hit, you know, knock on doors for four hours a day if she wanted to. And that's easy. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, I, I, I think that there is a, there is a, there's a there's a path to victory, but I definitely have – let's just say I wouldn't be shocked if I woke up, um, you know, on this set that was after Election Day, and it was Jan Gardner or maybe even Earl Robbins that uh, snuck through. Yeah,
1: well, let's stay on the Frederick beat and talk more in the context of the 6th District. Um, Deborah, welcome to the show. I think this is your first time. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, this is correct.
1: Okay, very good. Well, thank you for joining us. What's your take on the Sixth district election results on the Democratic primary?
5: Um, it was very interesting. <laughs> I was really surprised at the outcome of the election in general in terms of the candidates that did win versus those right. that did not win.
1: Um, did you happen? Did you happen to think that Aruna Miller was going to do better in Montgomery County? Because as it stands, Aruna took, let's see, she took thirty-eight percent, thirteen thousand eight hundred fifty-two votes. Looking at the Maryland State Board of Elections, and then Trone took twelve thousand eight hundred eighty-eight votes. So um, that's about thirty-five percent. Um, elsewhere, he cleaned up in Frederick. He cleaned up in Washington and he cleaned up in Allegheny County. And so we have this dynamic of originally going in, we thought perhaps that Trone um, would would do well in Western Maryland like he did when he ran in 2016 and cleaned up in Carroll County and Frederick County. So that stayed true. And so were you surprised that Aruna Miller didn't do better in Montgomery County, Deborah? I was,
5: actually, yes, yeah. I was.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, I, I kind of was too. Laura Stewart, what's your take? What do you think happened in that race? Is it a money race? Was it that there wasn't, there just wasn't enough, uh, <laughs> you know, were candidates just too, too over, overfunded with the, uh, the inundation of prone ads to the break through the pack?
6: Yeah. Okay, well, go ahead. Oh,
1: I'm Yeah. Laura, go ahead.
6: Um, So I think uh, part of this is that uh, Trone already ran once, right? So um, a lot of those people saw those ads from before. So the one thing I took from this election is that many people that ran more than once did very well. Um, It's really hard to fight that name recognition. And I think Runa Miller had an uphill battle when it came to – Really, just getting her name out and what she was about to everyone that Trone had already hit.
1: Yeah, I agree. It, it was tough. Uh, Trone blanketed the district like he did last time. Mailers, canvassers, paid canvassers, uh, paid them you know, a pretty decent wage. I think it was fifteen dollars an hour. We saw the Facebook ads in Western Maryland. Eric, I'm sure you saw billboards, big signs, everything. And I will say this. That throne in western Maryland, I had several people tell me that he went up and made the necessary relationships on the ground. He didn't know these folks. But, you know, let me ask you this, well, Amy. Hey, Ryan. When, Yeah, go ahead, Right.
0: So as far as David Trone goes, I think the thing we need to keep in mind is that uh, um, he's been lining the pockets of the entire Democrat Party across Western Maryland. Um, If you go back to, say, like the Frederick City 2017 race, um, he dropped uh, like $8,000 in donations to candidates in that race. And that same pattern exists across all of Western Maryland. You know, I mean, he dropped $2,500 on Michael O'Connor's campaign for Frederick City mayor and $1,000 for each alderman candidate. Um, So when you say building the relations – that's basically what David Trone was doing. David Trone was contributing money to local Democrats in order to get get inroads and have
1: those conversations with people. Yeah. Dan Meyer from Baltimore, who is a an, an absolutely astute follower of Montgomery County politics. You have made several um, – your position known that it might be tough for David Trone to fully consolidate the Democratic base, now that he has won the Democratic nomination and will be facing off against Republican Ami Hooper, who, of course, ran in 2016, won and then lost in the general election to John Delaney. Dan, do you think that David Trone will have a tough time pulling in the Democratic base?
7: Well, uh, you know, it's – that one election was probably not exactly – that far off my expectations uh as to what was gonna happen. It's just it's hard for me to imagine that Aruna with, you know, Roger Mano kinda flanking her on the left and Nadia um taking the other portion of the shall we say the, the, the women vote. Um the people who looking to vote for women were probably uh stopping women uh stopping some vote off of uh Aruna from that end, that it's not surprising that Aruna ended up where she was. Um, but it's hard for me to see. I, I just,
1: I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. Fair enough. Let's keep going. Amy Frieder, you're a, you're a district six resident. Is that correct? Yes.
4: Yes. Almost uh, a vast majority of district 15. Uh, at the state level, as in District 6, uh, the congressional level?
1: So as a district, a fellow District 15 resident myself, living in Aruna Miller's district, looking at the election results, David Frone cleaned up in Washington County. He cleaned up in Frederick County, and he did well in Allegheny County. Amy, do you look, you know, thinking about the year of the woman, and I I see, you know, many women have run for public office and that is, it's great. There have been people who have come out of the woodwork, especially women, to run for public office. If you were advising Aruna Miller and running in Western Maryland, which she didn't do too well then, which in the 6th District, it seems like the strategy has always been, let's just go through Montgomery County. And seemingly Aruna's strategy was to do really well and acquire the most number of votes as possible in Montgomery. And then it will offset any of, or, or yeah, offset what will happen in Western Maryland, but Aruna only took, as I said, um, 38% to Trone's 35%, which did not nearly even come close to offsetting him in Western Maryland. Amy, do you think she should have spent more time cultivating uh, Frederick and Washington and Allegheny and and had exited Montgomery just a little bit more?
5: Um. I mean, sure.
4: I, I mean, if you look at the results of uh, the 2016 primary, um, we can see that Trone did best in the more uh, rural parts of, of District 8. And so if we kind of, um, you know, emulate that in District 6, we can see that the, the same exact thing happened. He did better in the, um, you know, in the rural parts of the state. And so um, if she had kind of cut into that a little bit more um you know that could have, that could have definitely changed the results um i mean i
2: spent months
4: in in district 6 so in district 15 talking to people and and seeing um you know i could see the signs around i i had conversations with people about who they were supporting for congress sometimes they asked me about what i thought um and so i could see that aruna miller had a very very strong base in district 15 um but you know if we look at turnout Um, Across the districts in Montgomery County, districts 39 and 15, which are in Congressional District 6, have lower turnouts. Um, I think it's the the lowest and the second lowest uh, turnouts, respectively. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we really, really, uh, in order to, um, you know, sort of overcompensate for the other parts of District 6, you either have to really, um, you know, increase turnout or just really strengthen that base. Yeah. Um, so I know that District 15 um, this year had the largest increase in turnout during early voting uh, in comparison to, um, to other districts around the county, but, um, you know, it, it just wasn't enough at the end of the day for her campaign.
1: So bottom line, Bridget, bottom do you need
7: Go ahead. Dan? I, was, I just wanted to jump in and, and, and kind of add something to what was just said. Um, you know, one of the, the questions about, um, you know, should she have done more in, in Western Maryland? You know, when Jamie ran in 20, uh, 2016, he pretty much ignored uh, Carroll and Frederick Counties, And it wasn't because he had something against Carroll and Frederick County. It was simply that his base of operations was out of Silver Spring and to mobilize um, uh, volunteers to go up Carroll and, and Frederick County was, was a much more time-consuming thing. And with a lower population density and a lower density of Democrats, it's very expensive to reach them relative to reaching uh, somebody in Silver Spring or Bethesda or Chevy Chase or Tacoma Park. And so, you know, with Aruna running a very resource-constrained campaign compared to David Trone, it, it, to me, makes the most sense for her to to fight for votes that are close into her in a much more Democrat-rich area. Now, unfortunately, she was also competing more uh, with Roger Mano there, Um, but uh, I, I think that the amount of resources it would have taken to, to like really make a big difference in 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 uh, uh, the western counties would have been substantial. Okay, so yeah. down
3: the line. Ryan, Ryan, this is Devin. Can De- I jump in and add one more Please. thing Please. to what Dan said? I I I I tend to agree with Dan, and the final component that I would add to his comparison of the two races is that in the last cycle, Jamie also had the advantage of Trone competing with Kathleen Matthews for firepower in terms of television spending and things like that, right? So it wasn't just one huge spender in a race against people who were, as as Dan put it, relatively budget constrained. I, I tend to agree that I think the cost to Aruna of going to parts of the district, especially that were not potentially amenable to her um, message and issues and background was, was high. And so it was wise of her to concentrate on Montgomery County. But I also know from talking with people in the Trone campaign that they knew this, right? They looked at the results of his loss to Jamie and they said, okay, we know we can win the western, northern parts of the district. We know that we're going to do that well. We also have to concentrate on trying to overwhelm the advantages the other candidates running in Montgomery County may have.
1: Okay. Down the line, Bridget, is this going to stay in Democratic hands, or what do you think? Could it go possibly over to the Republicans? District Uh 6.
2: Great question. Uh, I know what the comments that I was going to make is that I think a lot of people also were voting in this primary strategically for that very question. Uh, I know I talked to multiple people in the 6th District who told me I'm voting for the person who can win in November, and they saw that as David Trone because of resources. So I think that um, Aruna and Roger lost out because people didn't be able to win the whole district against a Republican candidate and they voted strategically for David. With David Trone the nominee now, I think that he can take it. Um, I think he needs to work hard. I don't think he can rest easy, but I think he can take it, and I think we'll have another Democrat in the sixth district.
1: Uh, Eric Beasley, maybe from the Republican perspective, is it going to be impossible for Ali Hobart or insurmountable for her to overcome David Trone's massive bank account or since she's already built her previous relationships in the 6th District in the 5 counties, inclusive of the 6th District, is there a possibility that she can creep up on Trone?
0: All right, here's my time to throw some bombs. So David Trone <laughs> is probably one of the most hated Democrats that I have ever heard about. Um, I'll give you an example. It, uh, when we were at the uh, at the uh, Frederick Pride um, last weekend, um, when David Trone showed up, Every single Democrat booth that we were around was complaining about him having the gall to come around here and talking about how much they hated him. Um, I think that David Trone, he's an epitome of everything that Democrats claim that they're against. He's this uber-rich dude that is throwing around his money to try to win a $174,000 a year salaried position. And so, you know, you can't talk about big money in politics and then support somebody like David Trone, who's just blanketing, you know, he's probably cut down more trees than exist in Garrett County right now just to send out mailers. And so I think that overall, the overall attitude that I'm hearing from Democrats is we hate this guy. And I'm hearing a lot of them say that they're going to vote for Ami Hober. If there's a time for this district to flip before gerrymandering, this election's that time.
2: Wow.
0: Okay. All right. Let's keep All right. moving. Oh, um, yeah. oh, wait. Ryan. Ryan, Andy, Ryan I Omnia. hate to do this, I but let, let me add there.
3: one tiny okay. more tag on about mm-hmm. Ami. Is that, um, I, I was unaware of this previously, but I noticed that she has made it very clear that she is pro-choice. And yes, I think well, for an female yeah. Republican candidate in a race against a well-funded Democrat in this cycle, that that's... You know, if there's an issue after the retirement of Justice Kennedy that is going to put Democratic feet on the ground to vote mm-hmm. against somebody, that's going to be one of them. And if she is able to project that that's not an issue that people have to worry about her voting on in Congress, then that's potentially significant for her.
1: I agree. Um, let's move on. Let's move to Montgomery County, the behemoth of the mega council races, the county executive race that is still in election jeopardy, and nobody knows what the hell is going to happen with that as we count the absentee and provisional ballots. And by the way, hey, thanks, State of Maryland, on the uh, the whole uh, problem. (laughs) Wink, wink. Anyway, we have so many competing narratives, and I don't even quite know where to begin. We had several qualified candidates for Montgomery County executive, as well as Montgomery County Council at large, the Washington Post, excuse me, the Washington Post ballot endorsed three of the four winners of um, who turned uh, of, of the at-large race, and the Washington Post also endorsed David Blair. And of the six candidates who, who run, David Blair and Mark Elrich are currently competing for first place, and Elrich is about 145 votes ahead of Blair, who was a first-time candidate, a businessman who entered the race. Nobody quite knew who he was or where he stood on the issues, but he was all of a sudden endorsed by the Washington Post, spent um, a couple of million dollars to run, um, and uh, took traditional financing. And then also we had some other uh, more conventional candidates. We had George Levinfall, a county councilman at large. We have Roger Berliner, who represented, uh, who represents District 1 run. And we have, of course, Mark Elridge, who I previously mentioned. Then we had former Rockville Mayor Rose Krasnow. We also had um, State Delegate Bill Frick, who was was at one time going to run for the 6th District, dropped out of that and decided that he was instead going to run for county executive. And then, did I name them all? I think I named them all. If I'm missing somebody, my apologies. Robin, well, uh, are you Dan Meyer a ficker picker? Uh,
7: I'm gonna go with a no on that one.
1: Okay, that's a hard no. So where yes, are we? No. So Deborah, where are we in this race? Break it down: the county executive race, the the outsider businessman versus the outsider Tacoma Park, um, and the way that the narrative was shaped. It was anybody at the time, but but Mark Elrich, and some, somehow the David Blair, who was like obviously spending the most most money, had risen up the ranks to become the ultimate anti anti Mark Elrich candidate. So where do we stand? Who's going to come out on top? And let's just talk about that race. What happened? Let's break it down. Starting with you, Deborah.
5: Um, I kind of expected Mark to win. <laughs> I know that from my community, the African immigrant community, um, you know, his name was branded for the most part. Um, and I know that David Blair reached out to a lot of young professionals and a lot of my friends were supporting him. So it was, kind of, it was for, in my opinion, it was between David and Mark. And a lot of people from my background seem to support Mark more based on the fact that he had something to do with the 15-wage fifteen, min- uh, 15 wage minimum, you know, the new minimum wage in Montgomery County that passed right. recently. And that's something that would Im- impact or affect a lot of African immigrants or immigrants in Montgomery County in general. So they felt that he was the candidate to support or to stand for. Right. So I'm um, not Lars- very surprised that...
1: Go ahead. Please finish your
5: thought. Oh, I said that I'm not really surprised that he came out on top because a lot of people that don't really vote that actually came out to vote that I know ended up voting for him.
1: Okay, Laura Stewart. Some of the some people had launched um, quite a bit of opposition against uh, David Blair based on his past business practices, and they talked about um, a lawsuit with Catalyst Health Solution. And they talked about how he was a former Republican They and progressive Maryland uh, spent um, about $130,000 from a super PAC and threw everything that they had at him, including the kitchen sink. Do you think that the negativity against David Blair, some of the um, the, the opposition research and some of the, the oppo ads that went on TV, do you think that helped drive down his numbers and may have benefited other candidates, Laura?
6: Um, If it did, it was minimal, in my opinion. I think when Washington Post came out for uh, David Blair, uh, right there it was a two-man race between Blair and Elrich. And so you had um, pro-business slash pro-growth versus uh, smart-growth Slash, you know, someone for the uh, person who would take advantage of the Minimum Wage Act. So, um, yeah, maybe it nibbled at the edges. I don't think it had a huge effect. I think it was more, um, there was a driving narrative already going on.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. There was a narrative, and the... There's so many different publications, including the Washington Post, who ran an aggressive campaign against Mark. Now, Mark is still on top, and depending what happens with the next ballot count, we're not quite so sure how the race is going to turn out. Although I think on Thursday or Friday that David Blair is slowly but surely creeping up and into Mark's overall total. So my guess is, Devin Alice, do you think that the race could be decided by a few hundred votes?
3: Uh, well, I mean, it, it seems clear as of today that the race will be decided by fewer than 200 votes if the totals remain anything like they are. But let's remember that there are actually a fairly significant number of votes remaining to be counted. And if I'm in March camp, what I say to you is, the vast, vast majority of the time, votes that are cast provisionally I, I'm sorry I take that back. Votes that are cast by absentee break in the same pattern percentage-wise as votes that are cast on the day of the election. And therefore, Mark should be grateful for that. This has not exactly held for him in the first canvas against Blair, but there is a second canvas uh, coming up down the road of the absentee ballots as well. Provisional ballots, I think Mark would probably argue – will break more in his favor for the following reason. Um, he, will, he would probably say that, that voters who are likely to have shown up at the polls on election day unaware of the fact that they might be voting in the wrong place or that they might have been caught up in the MBA issue, those voters are by definition going to trend further in the direction of of populations that support mark overall working class folks folks who are you know uh coming back from their uh, workplace at the end of the day to cast the ballot conversely if i were in the blair camp i would say hey, every time we do a canvas, I'm eating into the total.
7: There is no yeah. reason
3: to suppose that by the time we get to the end of this, I won't be on top. Bridget, but I would about? be surprised, I would be very surprised at this point if there, if the margin is inside or out, uh, or I'm sorry, outside of a 1,000 votes. And I would point out, by the way, as well, that this may not necessarily be over when the official board of election canvases are over yeah. because there's a lot of election law that has to be considered here as well with regard to people's rights to hold recounts if margins are inside a certain amount. And David Blair has already retained the top Democratic sort of election law law firm in the country to represent him. So his, he's already picking precincts to recount.
6: Yeah. Can, I agree. Can I say Hi. one
3: oh, go, go ahead. So
6: Just one one more thing. Um, you know, the teachers union um broke a little late for um Mark Elrich. Um I think that really helped him um at the very end because I when I was at the polls I saw almost everyone take an Apple ballot. He had that sticker on there and it um showed up nicely. So, um, uh, between, um, it was the post version versus the teacher's union at right. the end. So anyway.
1: Yeah. The post ballot um, versus the teacher's union ballot. Um, let me just, yeah. let me just keep moving this discussion forward because we, so, um, we've got to get as much information as possible. So let me just keep moving the discussion forward on the County executive race. Bridget, what do you think happens with, um, so some of the other candidates. At first, we weren't sure how this would all break out. David Blair was a newcomer to politics, uh, not sure whether he would even make it into the top two. There were basically three tiers, which turned out ultimately to be Elvich versus Blair, then uh, Krasnow and Berliner, and then Fall and Blair. So did you, what did you make of some of the other candidates? And did Roger Berliner's ad that juxtaposed and transposed the face of Donald Trump, our Republican president,
2: to David Blair. Do you think that hurt him? That's a great question. Um, I do think it hurt Roger. I think that it it introduced an element of negative campaigning that wasn't necessary uh, at that point. I think that the race at that point, um, the, the narrative changed a little. It was not really collegial. Uh, not that these things really ever are collegial, but – it was it that was an unnecessarily negative move, and I do think it hurt Roger to an extent. Um, I also really think that, in this case, having a lot of very um, well known within our community candidates competing against one another, the vote breakdown ending up the way it did it was inevitable i mean we were going to have two people pull ahead we were going to have everybody else kind of around the edges and to me this is one of those situations that is a really good uh, example of why we should be considering ranked choice voting in the future because whoever ends up winning whether it's mark or david um is going to be winning with a very without a mandate with a very low percentage of the population, a very low percentage of yep. registered voters, and they're Just going to have to a lot of to work that. to do to move forward. All
1: right. I want to keep the conversation moving. The Dan News News Meyer, converse-
2: that, I'm going to get to
1: everybody. Um, I'm going to get to everybody. Dan Meyer, what do you make of the public financing model? Is it obviously Mark Elrich took public financing, David Blair didn't, Rose Crasnell took public financing, um, and Roger Berliner didn't. George Leventhal took public financing. Bill Frick did not. So, Fox?
7: so here was my comment. First off, I, I want to agree completely with Laura Stewart that this race and the governor's race and a number of other races have shown that that ranked choice voting, especially in a primary, seems almost critical to, to making sure that you know what the voters want really. Uh, Comes through, but in terms of public financing, uh, between this race and and the county council race, what I think this has shown is that that public financing is is actually a very viable, at least Montgomery County's model, uh, coming from Baltimore County, that public financing is a very viable way to uh, finance elections, and uh, and I've so far been pretty pleased at what I've seen. Uh, in terms of that, I'm not saying there can't be some tweaks that, that went on, but uh, I, I think it's good that it, it, it's preferable to have public financing over over private because it gets it reduces the influence of any one individual um, and uh, giving them outsized. And I, I think this was proof that it works that Mark Elrich is competitive with David Blair despite him spending way more than Mark has. And that all four of the county council candidates, I believe, uh, that won in uh, the um, uh, at-large race were um, public financing. And although in in District 1, the public financing candidate didn't win, the number two person uh, came in with public financing. Um, and I believe Ben Schneider was running with public financing in District 3, and, and he, uh, did, no, he, he was, uh, ran competitively.
4: Yeah, Amy what's, what's your take? Um, well, Cindy Cass's was run on on um, public financing, and Ben Schneider's was not. Um, but oh, okay. yeah, I mean, I think it's um, you know, overall a a very good model, and that um, the influence of of money in our political system is um, you know, a major cause of many of the issues in our democracy. So it's it's good that there's a dollar hundred fifty uh, dollar excuse me um, cap and um, I think it's a very good model and I think that um, that it would be great to have something like that um, at the state level for candidates running for uh, House of delegates to the state Senate um, yeah. that, that would be a major uh, improvement, um, in our democracy in the state of Maryland um, but I also want to echo what Laura was saying um, the Washington Post um wrote a an an opinion in the editorial department um saying that whoever is winning this um you know county executive race will not have um you know so much of a mandate and that it'll whoever wins will just have about three percent of the population's vote which is which is tiny um abysmal so um, ranked choice voting would be excellent Mm -hmm. as well as uh, open primaries as well i think uh-huh. In, a, in a county like Montgomery, we definitely should have uh, open primaries. Okay, let's,
1: we've exhausted. Well, the and I want to spend Devin. on. Go ahead,
3: Devin. Let real me quick. just, yep, real quick, I'll say book us a future show where I can do battle with all of these very fine people about ranked choice voting and open primaries. Okay, I think we, we, will share, do that. we share a vast Venn diagram overlap of other values, but I disagree with both of those things and also let me say i hope you have a chance to touch back to the district 1 race later on in the show because i do think that it is it is a bit of an anomaly and it has something to say both about the financing model and about a couple of other trends this year yes
1: i would like to keep the conversation moving towards that and then we have to get to baltimore county pg county and then the governor's race so we have so buckle up let's just keep the show moving let's talk about the at large race um, ultimately, it came down to Hans Reimer, the incumbent, who took public financing. He won his race, uh, and then we have Will Jawando, who placed second. And as I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. And then Evan Glass placed third, and then Gabe Albernaz placed fourth. And the breakdown was 51,000 votes for Reimer, 41,000 for Jawando. Glass with 33,000, Albert Nas with 31. Then we have Marilyn Balcombe who came in fifth at 26,000. Um, the Brooks Wilhelm ticket, um, Wilhelm's had 24,943 to Brooks' 24,836. Ashwani Jane came in at an eighth place with 18,000 votes. Juan Dang came in uh, ninth place with 16,000 votes. Then Bill Conway came in tenth with 14,000 thousand votes let's break this race down and you know and and I want to also say that our friend Jill Ortman Faust she came in behind Bill Conway um, in 11th place and then I'm opening up my uh, Excel spreadsheet we have Dan and then in 12th place of course we have Danielle uh, Mateev, and then 13th place was Charlie Barkley and really the the rest of them I'm just unconcerned about because then we have to there's 33 candidates we can't talk about them all but let's talk about these as quickly as possible because we have a lot to get to. There's one big factor missing, and I think we all know what that is on the at-large race. Let's just call out the 500-pound elephant. Eric Beasley is the Republican of our group. What do you think? What's missing on the county council here in Montgomery? Um, <laughs>
0: Did I, I render Republican? you silent? <laughs> yeah, well, no, okay. no, by. My- Look, Samsung Bixby is the stupidest thing in the world, and they just need to get rid of it. But, uh, no, hands down, look, total control from any political party of any legislative process is what creates the absolute worst legislation, and it's the worst for the citizens, and it creates ineffective government. It creates bloated government and ideological government. Hands down, there needs to be one Republican Even if they're the dog catcher of
1: Montgomery County, you just need to get somebody in there. Well, fair enough. Deborah, let me ask you this. On the at-large race, it looks like, barring a catastrophic Republican shift in November, no Republican is going to win an at-large race or a council district race. Now, we we can debate back and forth if district two could go possibly Republican, but I think we know the answer to that. And we can just talk very briefly and spend a minute on it. And I really don't want to, but we should, to be fair, but nonetheless, let's talk about what is missing from the County council.
6: I'm going to shout it out. if No one else does.
1: Okay. Please. Somebody.
5: We need a woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what, I was, that's what I was getting at. Where are the women? Where did the women? We had several qualified women run for office. What happened, folks? This panel, you know, we're all, let's just call it out. Why did not a single woman, we have one woman on the county council, and that's Nancy Navarro. She is going to win re-election handily. And then we have eight men. What does that say about Maryland's, arguably one of Maryland's most progressive counties? Let's just start. Anybody, this is a free-for-all, because this is a question I am begging somebody to answer. Anybody. All right. It's um, all
2: scary. I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Um, this Please. is Richard. I, I am appalled by this. I think that it's really incredible that this is the case, that this happened. There were amazing qualified women in the race who did very well. Marilyn Balcom is one, for example, who I've worked with. She's, she would have been a wonderful council member. Um, the, the problem is, though, that Maryland is a progressive state. Montgomery County is a progressive county. That doesn't necessarily mean that gender parity is valid. Uh, if you look at representwomen.org, Maryland has a D for gender parity, and I think we're seeing that Montgomery County follows that trend. Yes. Um,
5: this
6: is Laura Stewart. Can I say something really fast? Um, Please, Laura, three, three of the um, four that did win – um this again, this is their second or third time running. Um, yep. if you look at the women, um I don't believe any of them have run before. Um, so
1: correct
6: you know, we're we a little behind yes it was the year of the woman, but we didn't have a lot of women that had done this before. So this year might have set us up for great years in the future. Um that's my hope. Uh, The one that made it through without running before was Gabe Albernaz. He did end up getting the Washington Post uh, endorsement, which helped a lot, and he already had a countywide presence with his um, past position, and I believe he was endorsed by uh, Ike Leggett. Um, So this this is why we have to build our bench. It's about – building the women's bench. And I think in the next few years, you're really going to see, um, effort at doing that.
1: Yes. Um, let me, uh,
3: Ryan, this is Devin. I just want to echo what Laura and Bridget said, what, to what Bridget said, I also am very, very disappointed. Um, to what Laura said, I, I agree. I mean, I think what you saw was not a matter of a mass pattern, but, idiosyncratically, each of the four candidates who won had a lot of advantages that a lot of the women candidates with the possible exception of Marilyn, who you know just was not able to triangulate her business base and North County base into a win, they did not have. Right? You have an incumbent, you have a guy who has run multiple countywide races before, you have a uh, a person who is in on every board of every organization in the entire county and is also a former candidate in one of the highest voting districts who almost won it last cycle. And then you have a guy who runs a countywide department and got the endorsement of the county executive, right? So when you talk about building a bench of women, I hope that all of the women who ran this time will stay involved, become more involved, and run again next time because those little advantages added up in a year when people were overwhelmed by choice.
1: Yes, I agree. Uh, All um, very important Um, points. Okay. Go ahead, please.
5: Okay, so one thing that wasn't mentioned here that I noticed personally um, was that a lot of people who don't usually vote in immigrant um, populations, no one really reached out to them to, um, you know, inform them or, well, I wouldn't say no one, because I I did see different Democratic clubs or organizations reaching out, but I think we could do a little bit better, because after talking to a lot of communities, I realized that a lot of them are um, registered independent, and they could not vote for the Democratic ballot. So why am I bringing this up? Because I basically wrote names for my parents um, <laughs> and told them to go vote for these individuals, right? And my mom calls me at my work and she says, well, I don't see the names that you gave me. And I said, what kind of ballot do you have? She says, independent ballot. I said, well, go change it, get a democratic ballot. And then I end up reaching out to different communities and I realized that they couldn't vote for, you know, these people because they were registered independent. And this is not just on the African side, even Latino, a lot of Latino communities are also registered independent. So maybe in the future, we need to like educate these people a little bit more on the primaries and have them vote on the democratic side.
1: The great point. That is an excellent point. And I want to patch in one person, somebody else has called in, which is great. because we, I love when people call in. So, In addition to our panel, we have, if your phone number, the last four digits are 1655. You are on the air with our panel discussion, and the floor is yours.
8: How are you? It's Andrew Friedson.
1: Wow, Andrew Friedson. Our next councilman from District 1 has called in. Andrew, congratulations on your victory on Tuesday night. Uh, I think we were all watching and waiting to see what happens in the district one race. So other than the very basic analysis that you won handedly, what do you think? Tell us, tell us your thoughts.
8: Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm actually on vacation with my family in Tennessee. So I hope and you learned so. it. I'm coming through clear uh, here, but uh, um, it, I was in a really tough race uh, against a really, Talented and highly credentialed field with some stellar candidates, and uh, we just had this thought that um, we had a, a team that could that could push us across the finish line in a in a really tough race, and um, and and it turned out to be true. And uh, we had just a massive volunteer network and tapped into our local uh, connections and our local relationships. I, I grew up in the district. Um, and and uh, I think that made a big difference. And we just really ramped up, and uh, we had a message uh, talking about the fiscal and economic challenges that we were facing. We stayed focused on what uh, we referred to it as the Montgomery County squeeze, but the squeeze on schools and on roads and on families and uh, growing needs in the county um, and a lack of capacity to meet those needs, an economy that isn't growing. And I think people really – uh, appreciated and uh, felt uh, that message and really bought into it um, and it really resonated with people and then that combined with uh, a volunteer network that uh, I don't think could be matched and I, I really don't think it was matched by by anyone that that has little to do with me and um, everything to do with the folks who uh, really pushed us across the finish line.
1: Well, Andrew is our next county councilman from district one, I and I think, will be the youngest person on the council. Um, I want to say congratulations. Uh, you ran a hell of a race. I was impressed by your integrity, by sticking to issues. You talked about so many important issues that uh, have dominated the field, infrastructure, education, getting the, the requisite money that we need to ensure that Montgomery County's public schools stay the best in the nation. You talked about economics. You talked about really kitchen table issues that people were talking about uh, at the supermarket, at a gas station, or wherever. And you spoke to those issues. You built a incredible team, and you had, like, and you said it best, volunteers that came out. I was impressed watching the whole race. I didn't know how it would break, but I felt that um, with your political savvy, um, and uh, you, you just did an extraordinary job. And not only that, I'm just impressed about how much time you took to build individual relationships, and that matters in Montgomery County politics. Many of us here spent a lot of time working in Montgomery County public circles. And I think candidates who fared best have really spent and committed their time to building relationships with anybody who asked to sit down. And Andrew, ultimately that paid off for you. So congratulations. Thank you, I really appreciate it. All right, well, um, panel, um, it's, it's rare that we get somebody to call in who is a candidate. Andrew, I, I, I'm just going to say, go back to your vacation in Tennessee. That sounds way more interesting. <laughs>
8: well, I appreciate. I wanted to call in. I appreciate what you guys are doing, and I uh, appreciate everything, Ryan, that you've you've done to uh, really focus uh, like a laser on uh, the 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 campaigns and on the issues and on everything that is uh, going on. I, I have a, a passion for 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 the community where I grew up in, where I got to run, which is a unique thrill that. Uh, I got to experience and and for Montgomery County and for Maryland and you've really uh, provided an opportunity for for folks to really understand what's going on in our our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our county, in the state. So thank you for that. Thank you for doing this and I really appreciate it. You
1: bet. Andrew,
3: thanks for coming. I was on Facebook a minute ago. I hope your nieces and nephews caught that chicken so you guys could have something (laughs) to eat tonight. <laughs> I, I appreciate
8: it. We uh, we just wrapped up dinner. They've done a heck of a job, and uh, fortunately, they uh, they made bedtime. So uh, they are uh, uh, they, they're they're they they're, they're well rounded. I, I will I will say that the politics of a campaign are uh, sometimes easier than the politics of a family, including uh, uh, getting uh, five, six, four, three, two, and newborns uh, to bed on time. So um, I I, uh, I appreciate it, and uh, keep doing what you're doing.
1: Cheers. Andrew, thanks so much for calling in. Congratulations. Andrew Friesen, everybody, our like very likely our very next council uh, member from District 1. Let's go into some of the state delegate races that caught our attention, and I want to speak to um, only a few um, out of deference to time. Um, folks, let's just kill it right away with the uh, District 18 race, because I know that's all on our minds um, many of us have had personal interactions with this mega District 18 race. And then we'll go down the line, but let's just start. Um, was anybody surprised that Dana Byer lost to Jeff trigger? Anybody? And I don't care. No. He, it's all skinny. Okay. Who said that?
7: No. No,
6: no, not surprised.
1: Okay, not surprised. Dana Byer, she went negative. But when I say negative – Maybe she told the truth. Did anybody think that the issues brought out by Helga Luce, um, where she asked, you know, according to Helga, allegedly that, you know, she said that Jeff had asked her to step outside of the race to help her. Do you think that hurt him at all?
2: I think that was inside baseball.
1: Inside baseball. I I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, okay, another another sticking point to the District 18 race was uh, I, re- I read a Maryland Matters piece that called Al Carr uh, a vulnerable incumbent. That turned out to be the opposite of true. Al Carr right. won with 9,608 votes, according to my last check of the Maryland State Board of Elections, with 22.1%. It seems like the incumbent advantage helped Al. Barra, what do you think? Do you think that? he was untouchable
6: from the very outset? Um, I think um, almost everyone I talked to had, most people had him on their list because they wanted some stability. He's um, a really nice guy. Uh, people that had interactions with him um, left with pleasant, you know, a pleasant interaction. So, um You know, some people wanted a little more fire in our uh, legislation, uh, our our legislative district, but um, Al seemed to be the steady force, and so I'm not surprised that he was a top
1: vote-getter. Dev, you had a personal interaction with a candidate yourself, your wife, Myla Johns, and what is your take
3: on the race? Look, um, I let's be frank here this is not unique to this cycle the alcar is a vulnerable incumbent storyline has been around from the moment he was appointed in 2007 because he was far down the ballot in the first race that he ran and lost in the district and he has been I think what you would call a bread and butter legislator, where he's focused a lot on issues that are close to home for constituents um, and not on big pushes in Annapolis. And this has always framed this narrative that somebody could run and push Al out. Obviously, that is not the case. And I want to say this, you know, having looked back at the numbers for a long time, This was not just a good night for Al as an incumbent legislator. This was a historically good night for any incumbent legislator in District 18. No one since the 1980s has won more than 9,000 votes in a House race in District 18. He won more votes than Jeff won as the top vote getter last time, more votes than Anna won as the top vote getter the time before, More, more votes than Rich won previously. He is, this is, This Tuesday was maybe the biggest night of Al's career as an elected official in terms of affirming his position as a favorite public servant in his district. I'm not sure how that all breaks down right now. I haven't had the time to run through precinct by precinct. But I think it was, whether it was surprising to people or not, it was affirmative, right? Yeah. But I do want to say one thing about the negative ads before we move Mm. on. One thing about the would Dana lose. Can you go? Think what you like. Here are the numbers.
1: As of today,
3: Jeff won 49.7% of the vote. Dana Beyer won 36.9% of the vote, and Michelle Carhart won 13.4% of the vote. Given that Jeff had every institutional endorsement, was running essentially as the you know, incumbent elect, had the endorsement of Rich Madaleno, who is hugely popular in the district, I think it would be hard to see to point to these results and say that the, you know, that the attacks and the money and the campaign that was waged against him from the Helga Luce story all the way through the delegate no-show stuff did not impact this race. I would frankly have expected him to do better than these numbers. And so I think the numbers that he put up are a credit to Jeff's very, very, Uh, Excellent skills as a campaigner And his support in the district But they also do point to the fact That you know it it hurts To have hundreds of thousands of dollars Spent against you In a race like this
1: Right Bridget Take into consideration all the candidates And it looks like That Emily Shetty and Jared Solomon Jumped into the race early And that seems to be another narrative That has formed in the aftermath of this They jumped in last summer, they got their footing, they were knocking on thousands of doors, and they ran a textbook campaign. Emily, having her vice chair, um, was considerably aided probably by the 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 Democratic Party. She had that institutional support. Jarrett ran a very textbook campaign as well. Is it impossible for people who don't get in early to find success? And when I say early... They have to get in before the summer, almost, you know, eight, ten months in advance. Bridget, what's your take?
2: Well, let's also remember that Emily came in fourth four years ago. So she has name recognition. She also has um, a crew of supporters from that election who were very excited and encouraging her to get back in the race. So, you know, I'm not surprised that she succeeded this time, and I expected her to. Because of that, um, I think as far as your question about timing, I think getting in early does give you the benefit. You get the time to build that name recognition. I mean, really, we're talking about relatively small numbers of people, and Jared Solomon has been knocking on doors for months and meeting people in their yards, meeting people at the metro station. And not to say that the candidates who came in fourth, fifth, and sixth didn't do that. I think they did a great job as well, but they weren't doing it for as long. As Jared
6: and I'm Yeah. Jared showed up to PTA meetings you know, last, last year. year. So it really made a huge difference. This is Laura. Um and um so there was a particular person that got in late that came in um fourth and that would be Leslie Milano and she just had an uphill battle the whole time. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was actually surging towards the end. But to beat um, people that have been out there for almost, you know, a whole year
4: before you, or at least
8: a <laughs> half it's a year, hard. it's
4: really hard.
1: It, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that. And I think that, um, you know, she ran a great campaign. But getting in late could have been a, uh, like, you, like you said, an uphill battle. So that was a race that we all very closely followed, and I want to talk, and I I want to keep moving because um, you know we we have limited time. But nonetheless, were there any races in Montgomery County as far as state delegates, state house, um, state house races of the panel following this? Did any races surprise you? Were there incumbents that you thought would do better or do worse? What happened there? Um, You know, looking at um, you know in District 19, Maricel Morales, she. She got knocked off by uh, a newcomer, Von Stewart, and then um, Shane Robinson in District Thirty-Nine. He got knocked off. What do we make of that, Deborah? What's your take on on some of these incumbents losing their races? Deborah, you still with us? Okay, let me. I, I don't know if Deborah's still with us.
2: Um, Well, Ryan, I'll jump in for a second. This is Bridget. Um, I wanted to just say that the 39 race is incredibly interesting to me, because if you look at the vote totals, it was Leslie Lopez who came in first, and then Gabe Acevedo came in second. And those were both not incumbents. They were – Leslie was on the slate. Gabe wasn't. But they were the ones who got the top vote. And I, you know, I don't have the answer for why that is. I don't live in District 39 anymore, although I used to. Um, But I thought that that was very interesting.
1: Yeah, and I I agree. Um, You know, of course, in District 15, Amy Frieder, no one better can talk about the race. And let me say this. I was wrong, and I want to admit when I was wrong. I thought the race was between Lily Chee and Kevin Mack based on the institutional support and based on the amount of money both of the candidates raised. So I wrote, I put a piece out that I wrote a couple of months ago and maybe it wasn't that long ago, but nonetheless, I said, I, you know, based on what I'm hearing and everything that I am, I'm having these conversations with various people that really cheer Kevin Mack would ultimately replace Aruna Miller who ran for Congress is not running for re-election in district 15. Amy, you knocked on thousands of doors. You were a hell of a candidate and you actually you came in fourth. Place. And right now as it stands, um, it looks like Dumay won, Hidalgo Frazier won, and Lily Chi came in second. And you were off, you were in fourth place with, I think, I'm just trying to find my numbers. You might know this, if you know tell me because I'm going to be searching through my uh, uh, video. 5,060 votes, 14.5%. So, Amy, congratulations for running a, a, just a fantastic campaign.
4: Well, thank you. And just to to kind of echo um, what what was said earlier, um, you know, I jumped in in late January. Um, And so, yes, jumping in late is a huge disadvantage, um, especially because a lot of the most important endorsements, um, you know, are already made by then. So, you know, when I reached out to the Sierra Club, they said, well, sorry, it's too late um and you know some other big uh institutional endorsers i know the uh you know mcea they they start their process uh in the fall um so so that's another factor of of um you know starting a campaign race um late but uh alexandria um ocasio-cortez up in new york uh, she recently posted a, a picture where she had canvassing shoes with holes in them and uh, you know, I, I have shoes I with, with holes in them just from uh, from canvassing as well. So um, that was definitely a, a major part of my strategy.
1: Yeah. Well, you knocked on a lot of doors. And to your credit, I, I was very impressed by um, what you were able to accomplish with less money than most of your uh, your competitors and, and otherwise. So um, it, it's very so interesting to see.
5: Maybe?
1: Yeah, please. Go I'm ahead. Sorry?
5: Oh, I'm sorry. This is Deborah, and hi, Amy. I would agree that um, starting late kind of hurt you. I am in your district, and I voted for you, and I had my parents vote for you as well. But well, thank I you. You, um, I think, a couple of weeks before the primaries, um, whereas I knew about Lily and the other candidates, you know, way ahead of you know the primaries. So I guess I would agree that starting late kind of hurt you, but. I would congratulate you for everything that you've done and you're very inspiring and don't give up. Don't quit. Just keep going. And I hope that you'll run again and I'll vote for you again. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: All right. Let's move on to the big tamale in this, in, in the state of Maryland, the, the gubernatorial race. And I'm interested to go down the line of the panel to get your thoughts. Ben Jealous came up on top. He beat, Reshern Baker, and the race, of course, was upset, sadly, on May the 10th, when County Executive Baltimore County Executive Kevin Kamenetz passed away suddenly from a heart attack, which upended the race. Valerie Irving ultimately decided to run for governor in the five days, the window that she had, and then dropped uh, out of her bid uh, late in the race and endorsed Reshern Baker, and it broke the way that Ben Jealous was surging seemingly surging in the last two weeks, starting with you, Devin Ellis. Did you predict that Jealous would win from the outset, or did you think that he would come in maybe second or third?
3: Brian, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think that anyone who's spoken to me in the last 12 months knows that I did not predict anything about this gubernatorial race because it was such a wild ride. But I do think that it was a huge night for Ben Jealous on Tuesday. I I don't think you can overstate how big of a win it was for him, given the crowded field, given the way the institutional endorsements broke, given the way the the Maryland state party endorsements broke. Um, He won all but two jurisdictions. That's saying something. And while I'm not sure what his prospects are in November – I think it would be impossible to say that, you know, this was, even given as crowded a field as it was, he has as much of a mandate as you could hope to garner from a situation like this, because he convincingly prevailed all over the state. This wasn't cobbled together with, minority percentages in a or you know in a few places and then big wins in one or two this was a consistent number around the state
1: yeah um, Dan Meyer you were an unabashed supporter and still are of Rich Maddalena. were you surprised that Rich wasn't able to break through given his decade long experience as one of the most promising state legislators in the state senate, and before that, in the house of delegates, considerably one of the smartest guys running in amid the uh, the, what, the nine person field. What What's your take on Rich's campaign, Dan?
7: Well, it's um, a good question. Um, am I surprised that he wasn't able to break through? Uh, the answer is yes, to some degree. Um, I mean, I, I think that there's a, a, a certain level of self-fulfilling prophecy when everybody keeps saying, oh, well, you're polling at 6% and they're polling at 16%. And then, the, you know, the major newspapers start talking about the race being between Roshan and uh ben Jealous. And, you know, I had had multiple people come up to me and say, they want Rich, but they're voting for somebody else because they don't think Rich has a chance. So once you get into that mode, Rich doesn't have a chance. Um, the thing that concerns me is that, you know, while I absolutely agree with Devin, what he said, um, at the same time, you know, there's a significant number of people who were voting for returned because they couldn't stand Ben Jealous. Anyway, Similarly, people were voting for Ben Jealous because they couldn't stand Roshan, right. and the the that's not true of Rich. I mean, I can't think of anybody who really dislikes Rich in a significant way. So if Rich had won, it would have been much easier for him to pull in either um, the Roshan supporters or the Ben Jealous supporters. Uh, I have... Although he certainly did, uh, uh, Ben certainly did well among uh, Democratic voters. I don't know how much bigger the potential pool is that Ben Jealous will be able to tap from in the general election. Um, but to, to answer your question, I am really surprised how well Ben Jealous did.
3: Um,
1: uh, fair and enough.
7: How poorly Rich did.
1: Eric Beasley, what is your take? On the general election matchup, now that the Democratic contest has been resolved and Ben Jealous is the nominee, going into the fall, it's the summertime. People are going to be paying less attention. Then, of course, after Labor Day, the campaign kicks into full swing, and then October comes around, and then boom, November is here. And then the real matchup will be between Larry Hogan, who is arguably one of the country's most popular governors, versus the former NAACP president, who has also a national following and could bring in a significant amount of money, but Larry Hogan, mind you, has $9 million in the bank and is expected to bring in more. Is this a contest? Is this a real race? Do you expect – what do you think?
0: So, first off, Ben Jealous is a communist.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) I had to get my second one in there for sure. Um, (laughs) I don't – look, I think that Larry Hogan Larry Hogan That's is That's one. Has, is, I I I called somebody else a communist earlier I swear. Uh, no you but didn't. So, that was one. Um but all right so so Ben Jealous is like Ben Jealous is too extreme for most of this state despite the fact that Maryland is a progressive state like I think that Larry Hogan is going like Ben Jealous is the best matchup against Larry Hogan for the Republican Party. Um, I think Larry Hogan's going to wipe the floor with him. Um, I'm I would say a ten point victory at least. Um, you know, Je- all of Jealous's plans basically revolve around we're going to pay, we're going to give you all this free stuff, and somehow we're going to figure out how to pay for it which when you contrast that to how Larry Hogan has done it, where it's basically like, here, we're going to give you more of your money, you know, like and doing the, the small things that he can, when the state legislature doesn't like, you know, yank the power away from him that they, that the, that Annapolis has invested in the executive branch over the last 40 years. Um, so I don't think that, I don't, I don't think Ben Jealous has a shot. I think he's, I, I think this whole like democratic socialist like wave it turns off too many Democrats. Um, it they they might hold their nose and cast the ballot, but that's exactly what gave us Governor Hogan in the first place. Was Anthony Brown was an uh, was a was a terrible candidate, and Democrats couldn't even hold their nose and vote for him. So now we have Governor Hogan. I think we'll see a repeat of 2014 happening in 2018.
1: Um, Laura Stewart. So I I I, I, I go ahead. Dave.
0: I, I was
7: just going to say I. I disagree completely now that's not to say that i think that he's wrong that larry hogan will win but i think that 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 um, anthony brown's issues were unique to anthony brown and that um, uh, ben jealous will have a different set of challenges Um, the problem with with anthony brown was he took everything for granted and that he, you know, he, he he wasn't very charismatic. And Ben Jealous is charismatic, and he has been campaigning hard, and he has a very devoted following who are out pushing him very hard. And um, Anthony Brown did not have that. So I, I'm not suggesting that the outcome will be different, but the uh, – I, I think that the, the the way you get there will be completely different from Anthony Brown, and
1: it's not a reasonable comparison. Laura, Laura Stewart, the education sure. issues will be on the ballot. It's a big one. That's what the bread and butter of these statewide issues are, right? I and mean, that's and that's important. Is someone who is so invested in our education process? How do you? How does it come down? How does it? How does? Where do education advocates go? I mean, the logical. It seems like Vangelis has the support of one of the the, the state's largest uh, teachers' association. So do, do Democrats line up in lock sync with Jealous, given that it's this, you know, the narrative, it's a blue wave? Or is Larry Hogan inoculated from that, given his popularity? What say you?
6: Um, I think it's an uphill... You know, climb for Ben Jealous, but it's not impossible. Um, I went to the, um, the kiss and makeup party um, with some dedicated Democrats, and Ben Jealous really got that room going. Um, people seemed excited to back him. Yes, people who are wanting more attention to education, especially Montgomery County, are very excited to get someone else In the state house, Um, the calendar issue is something people, if you don't have kids in schools, you probably don't think about this. It really squeezed parents this year um, all over the state. So there are some opportunities to um, knock Hogan down a bit. I think uh, the people that went for Rich or for um, Reshern, are ready to get behind ben jealous because of these issues. Also, health care is huge, a huge issue right now. So I think um, we have a chance of flipping um, the, the governorship. You know, it's not going to be easy, but I think Democrats are ready to get behind ben jealous.
1: Deborah, my question to you is, who would have thought, coming into this four years ago, that Maryland is dominated by uh, Democratic Party registration, I believe, two to one. There's millions more Democrats than there are Republicans, and today we're talking about a Republican governor who could seemingly cruise to re-election. And now that we have Ben Jealous, um, who is a staunch progressive of the Bernie Sanders wing of the political party, is that going to be able to resonate all across some of Maryland's more rural counties, like in Western Maryland or on the Eastern shore or up in Northern Maryland, up in Hartford or Cecil County? What say you, Deborah? Uh,
5: I think honestly, Ben Jealous sends, uh, he has a pretty good chance. Um, I did hear him speak prior to the primaries um, back in January in He's very charismatic, just like a lot of people said. Um, I didn't really think he was going to win the primaries. And because he has won, I think he has a good fighting chance of winning, you know, and of being more popular than Hogan. (laughs) Interesting. But I think that he's going to have to work a lot harder, but he stands a really good chance of winning.
1: Interesting. Amy Frieder, let me ask you this question about this gubernatorial race. It's, uh, it's it, We're coming into the long summer where people, like I said, they're going to be paying less attention, vacations, picnics, parties, and candidates will be out on the surface meeting with new voters, making sure that the party is um, all set to support it. Do you see any fractures at all in... Um, do you see any fractures in the party? Do you believe that Jealous has all of the party's support, the traditional institutional support, the Rashern-Baker wing? Even though they say they support him, do you really think Rashern-Baker, who was, going to, was supposed to win this nomination by all indications of Chris Van Hollen, Martin O'Malley, uh, Brian Frosch, all these institutional Democrats in Maryland backing him, do you think that he really has corralled the, the Democratic Party's support? Do you think it's going to
4: take some time? Um, so let me just start off with saying that um, I'm a big fan of Ben Jealous and Susie Turnbull and have been since they entered the race. Um, if you had asked me a few months ago who I thought, you know, would win the primary, you know, I wasn't sure. But when we found out um, about, the massive, massive turnout of young voters, of, uh, you know, first time voters, the, the voters who don't traditionally turn out for you know, midterm primaries um, after the early voting numbers came in. That's when I think I knew that, um, you know, that that I think Ben Jealous um, would have a real shot at this, because I do was, think that, what like, um,
3: what like a 285 percent increase over the last cycle. It was a two
4: hundred seventy six percent increase, yes, <laughs> um, for uh, the eighteen to twenty four year olds, and so I think that um, that their campaign is really resonating with um, you know with, with the young with the young people and, and progressives, and I think that in November, um, young people and progressives particularly are going to turn out, because that's what we're hearing over and over again. You know, if you're mad about. Um, you know, these, these mass shooting, you know, go vote in November, go vote in November. And so there are a lot of young people and progressives who are excited to to vote come November. And so I think because of that turnout is not going to be typical. Um, Even if some of the the typical voters, the democratic establishment voters, um, you know, will will have to decide to hold their nose or whatever, even if they're not as excited, there are going to be lots of new voters who are excited.
1: Fair enough. I want to just shift directions briefly, and as we wind down the show, I want to move up quickly to Baltimore County, and many of you have been following races all over the place. And We didn't get to some of the statewide races, but I will say that Mac Middleton, the longtime Senate Finance Chair, has been defeated by um, insurgent candidate Arthur Ellis. That's interesting. Um, and then Corey Stewart defeated the president pro-tempo of the the state Senate, um, and Corey McCranton is going to be the next state senator from District 45. It looks like Mary Washington is, um, yeah, it looks like Mary Washington is going to end up uh, winning that district, I believe, state Senate District 43 seat. So the the Senate makeup is um, quite interesting, how it's going to reflect Mike Miller's uh you know with Mike Miller still being the Senate president who of course he won overwhelmingly um his district 27 race well and so
3: go ahead so so Ryan yeah i mean i think this is one of one of the bigger stories this coming session is going to be mike miller's shuffling of the deck chairs yeah um he will be reelected as senate president of course but you're talking about six people who are leaving the chamber who have been key parts of his leadership strategy for a long time now. You have three crucial lieutenants, Joan Carter Conway, Nat Oaks, and Mac Middleton, who have all lost their races for re-election. They will be replaced in all three instances by people who are expected to be hostile to to Miller's leadership. And then in addition to that, you have Ed Casemeyer, Rich Madalino, and John Astle, who have all left the chamber voluntarily, right? So you're talking about six people who were either committee chairs or crucial leadership members. And while, you know, chairmanship in the, in the Senate is completely within the purview of the president to award, so that gives him an enormous amount of ability to control how the, the chamber functions, he is going to have a lot of new politics to think about as he looks at who these folks replacements will be. Some of them will be openly opposed to his leadership. Others yeah. won't be, I expect Clarence Lamb, who's replacing Ed Casemeyer, Meyer, will um, you know will be you know uh, a team player, as will Jeff Waldstriker replacing Rich Madalino, as will Sarah Elfreth. In District 30, if she comes through to replace John, would be an Maxwell. interesting race.
1: Yeah, um, that's a very that,
3: interesting race, and I think we shouldn't leave without saying something about it because if she does win, she will not only come, be a new woman in the chamber, but she will also be the youngest state senator since I believe the 18th century. So,
1: I want to I want to come back to that, but I want to move quickly to Baltimore as we're wrapping up the show, and we will get back to to Sarah in just one moment. I want to move to the mega primary that many of you may not have followed, or you may have district seven that where we have Republican leadership, Kathy Shalega, um, who of course, remember, she was a 2016 U S candidate and she was clobbered by Chris Van Holland in a way that was, un I mean, it was just, I feel, I actually don't feel bad for Kathy Shalega. Um, but uh, nonetheless, she was clobbered in that race and here she is, Um, And she's heading back to the House of Delegates in Republican leadership in the state of Maryland. Um, uh, Rick and Polaria, an interesting character in the 7th District, um, who literally tried to run over his parents with a car, um, was stopped last year in Ocean or a couple of years ago um, for uh, drunk driving and then was arrested and booked and then ultimately had to serve, I think, two days in jail he is returning. He was elected, and then a third character in that di- that crowded 13-person district primary, I believe the largest primary in the state, um, is Lauren Lauren Aracon, who um, is a newcomer. She was backed by the the Kipkies, um, and um, who is in leadership. That's Nick Kipke, of course, in the Republican leadership, and Susanna Warner Kipke, his wife, and she was ultimately supported and backed by and, uh, Andy Harris, Congressman Andy Harris. Um, and she was, uh, then they did a mail, Kathy Shalega did a mailer. And the interesting thing about this is, is that she moved from Howard County, Lauren Aracon to, this is, and then she ultimately paid Pat McDonough $3,000 for his endorsement. Who would ever want to pay Pat McDonough for an endorsement other than Lauren Aracon? She's getting thousands and thousands of dollars of of out-of-state and out of maybe even out-of-country money. Um, She's getting a lot of Turkish money. I'm not saying there's any one way or it's bad or good, but there's thousands of dollars that, that have been coming into this District 7 Republican primary, and this virtual unknown person has shown up and then has gotten the backing of Maryland's Republican leadership there's something that's not adding up. And not only that, as we all have dealt with campaign finance in some sort of way, Lauren Aracon was late to the party in turning in her June Maryland campaign finance report. I called her out on it on uh, Thursday morning and asked her, you know, what was the purpose? And her excuse was, candidates, bear with me. Her excuse was, I was busy. I was working harder than every other candidate in the field. Her husband so happens to be a certified public accountant or an accountant of some kind who deals with financial. she was too busy to turn in and follow basic Maryland law. There's going to be a lot coming out of District 7, and it's disappointing to see that someone who is has already changed their Facebook status to say that they are a government official when they have not been elected, that this is the route that they are going. You're going to see Republicans not lining up on her and Allison Berkowitz, who is one of the Democrats um, in District 7, she could actually have a real chance to knock off Lauren Eragon. Let me say this again. Lauren Eragon paid Pat McDonough $3,000 for his endorsement and incorrectly listed it on her campaign finance report. It's wild stuff. Maryland is such a unique place for interesting characters. And, you know, I just want to say that Pat McDonough and Al Redmar – Um, that race was interesting. Pat McDonough is not endorsing Al Redmer in the race. And I want to say that Larry Hogan probably did an Irish jig on the night of the election inside of the state house when he found out that McDonough went down because there is no worse person that you would want on the Baltimore County uh, top of the ticket for county executive than Pat McDonough. Imagine that, ladies and gentlemen on this panel. If Pat McDonough had to run on the Hogan ticket, you, we all know that Larry Hogan's path to re-election drives right up through 695. And boy, oh boy, if McDonald was on that ticket, it would have been ugly for Hogan. So I want to go down final thoughts on the, the Maryland's primary. Let's go opposite. Bridget, what are your final thoughts on Maryland's primary?
2: I think it was a wild ride. I've been watching it for over 18 months and have been enjoying every single minute of it. Um, I do want to look forward, though, and say that turnout is going to be key in November. I think that I didn't have a chance to chime in when we were talking about the gubernatorial primary, but uh, when you look at the the counties that had the lowest turnout in 2014, it was Montgomery County, Prince George's County, and Baltimore City. If turnout in those counties increases, Hogan really does have to worry, and I do think that Benjelis can excite turnout in those three jurisdictions.
1: Fair enough, Amy Frieder, Final thoughts on Maryland's primary day.
4: Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to echo, you know, just over and over again what um, what other people have been saying. But I mean, it was it was a great day for people who uh, run for office multiple times it was a good day um you know for candidates with um you know certain uh you know the washington post endorsements mother endorsements it was not a very good day for women um and Mm. hopefully turnout will be good in november
1: uh dan meyer what are your thoughts final thoughts on the primary election?
7: Well, oh, you never got to the Baltimore County executive on the, on the democratic side, which is, is Take it away. But, um, <laughs> well, I was, uh, kind of amazed by it. Um, uh, I, I had never thought that, that Jim Broshan was going to play a serious factor in it, but it appears he is just behind Johnny O, um, in the county exec race. And, and it, is, votes. it would be, it would be easy for uh, that to flip, um, with the uh, the absentee the second absentee canvas or the provisional canvas, um, and i I had always assumed that Vicky was going to win, but um, uh, towards the end it, it became clear to me that i I didn't think that Vicky was um, campaigning hard enough, and I, I thought that Johnny O was going to take it but uh, but she might um, but it is amazing to me, considering the polling that's come out. How tight all three of them were. They were within yeah. like one point two percent from, the, from, from uh, Johnny O to uh, Vicky Almond in, in, in third place at this moment. So
1: that's it. Well, I appreciate those thoughts, Deborah. What are your final thoughts on the June twenty sixth Maryland primary?
5: To the June twenty sixth.
1: Yeah, the the primary. What are your final thoughts?
5: Oh. um. In general, overall, I think it was, you know, it was great for me personally. Um, I got to do a lot of work in terms of getting a lot of communities involved, um, knowledgeable about the democratic process and just voting, getting getting a lot of people out to vote. Um, I got to see people who were never interested in Political issues at all Being interested for the first time And actually coming out to vote I had my whole church come out to vote So that was great for me um, to see um, The results were a little bit surprising And some was disappointing But I'm happy for the, I, I can see change You know, in Montgomery County I can see change in there In general And I'm looking forward to November And having a lot more people vote Having a lot more people um just you know engaged in the whole process
1: yeah well i appreciate you being on the show tonight eric beasley hopped off he has two young kids at home and i know that he had to tend to them and uh i hope that uh if you were keeping track of his um communist count i believe he was up to two or three so uh, he said that before coming on to the show um laura stewart what are your final thoughts on this primary election
6: Um, I don't want to repeat what other people said, so I'm going to give a shout-out to the youth vote. Uh, We saw a big uptick. I think this is something that's great uh, for a democracy. To get the young people involved, um, they will need to, you know, we need to keep them involved. uh, Hopefully they'll come out to the general election. Um, Also... It was a big experiment in public financing. I think for the most part it did well. We will see uh, what the final count is at the county executive, um, how it worked out between self-financing and traditional versus the public financing. Um, But those are two great points. And again, um, the women are going to be fired up for the next few years to even do better and hopefully do better next time around. So
1: I, I agree. Um, and Devin, final thoughts on the the election.
3: election. All right. I agree with everything that everyone has said so far and I'm going to use my final thoughts to, to, uh, share one of my favorite stories from this cycle, which has to do with, uh, political dynastic comebacks and not so comebacks in Prince George's County. Um, there were two sets of races this primary cycle where a parent and a child ran together in Prince George's County, the parent for a council seat and the child for a delegate seat. One was in the the, uh, the westernmost part of the county where Tom Dernoga, who served two terms previously on the county council, ran for reelection and bested long, long time uh, moral mayor. Um, Craig Moe to win back his seat again and his son simultaneously ran for the delegate seat in district 21 and was narrowly edged out by Mary Lehman, a former council member who started her career in politics working for his father on her, his staff. So there you go. That's uh pretty interesting. And then of course, over in 47, the great, Ivy dynasty comeback. Jolene Ivy, who served as a delegate for many years and was the uh, lieutenant gubernatorial candidate on the Gansler slate in 2014, made her comeback to elected office this year, yeah. winning the Democratic primary for that council seat. And her son, Julian Ivy, um, with her husband, uh, Glenn, who was a longtime state's attorney there. Um, is now uh, – has, has won a delegate seat ousting Jimmy Tarlow, and so there you go. It's never over till it's over, folks.
1: Yes, um, and I was going in, in, to say, to hearken our friend Barry O'Connell in the Maryland Politics Group.
3: Do not uh, Do not call him Red Jimmy. He is no Brad more liberal Jimmy. than most of the members of the chamber. That is such a such a slur. I, I just inadvertently gave Eric his third commie call-out.
1: Yes. Uh, to hearken, yes. Uh, okay. I won't say, Brad, Jimmy Tarleton. Oh, wait. I just did. Um, so, panel, I want to say it's hard to get anybody assembled um, at any given time for well over an hour to talk about politics, nonetheless. Your time to me is extraordinarily meaningful. And I know many of you have had personal investments uh, in this latest campaign. And that goes well beyond words. It goes well beyond the show. All of you are huge players in our political process in Maryland, not only because you participate, you don't sit on the sidelines, but you go out, you do the hard work, you educate yourselves on the issues, and you put those issues to the test and you bring other people into the cause. And there is no better thought than having friends who truly care about their respective communities. And that, to me, just says so much about the future of our democracy, the future of this republic. And you being on the panel tonight to talk politics, I'm sure there was lots of people listening. um, And I'm sure that uh, we're going to do this again. I'm going to do this as often and early as possible. My final thoughts on this election is that anybody who decided to put their name on the ballot, they have earned my respect. Good, bad, or indifferent, it takes a lot to run for any elected office. It's tremendous hard work. The emotional roller coaster is unimaginable for families, for people who, um, you know, are involved with the candidates, for their spouses, for their children. It is an incredible journey. And anybody who has ever thought about running for public office, it is not an easy dip into uh, to putting your name onto a ballot. It's hard. And it takes extraordinarily focus. It takes hard work. And uh, 10,001 things can go wrong in any campaign. But anybody who decides to get off the couch and put their name onto a ballot has earned my respect. I have no idea what's going to happen in election. We see polls. We see where things stand uh, as of July 1st. But on November 1st, things will be markedly different. The scene will probably be 150, 60, 70, 80%. And I will say this, that I'm going to be watching closely all of the races in, in the state of Maryland and try to highlight some of the real narratives and draw those out. And as far as the Hogan the Hogan Jealous Race, I'm going to, I'm going to cover it. I'm going to do it fairly And I'm going to bring out the best, and I hope the the candidates bring out the best, and their platforms, and really highlight the narratives of people, the reason why they are running. And with that, panel, thank you for doing this on a Sunday night. It's hot out there. I know many of us will probably be rather doing something else or watching our favorite Netflix show. But instead, you chose to spend Sunday evening with me on a Minor Detail Radio podcast to talk about politics. And for that... I say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for doing that. So let's do this again. What do you all say? Was it fun? Was it productive? I hope so.
3: It was awesome. We'll do it
1: again. Okay. Very good. Thanks. Well, I appreciate it. And as we all follow the race, we will catch up with one another, of course, on Facebook. So with that, um, have a great week. Happy Fourth of July. It's Independence Day. Do not shoot off your fingers with any M- M80s, which I think are cool. Um, but enjoy this warm weather, drink lots of water, and please always read a minor detail. Dot com. I've taken a brief sabbatical after the election, but I will be back tomorrow with some fascinating Maryland political news. And with that panel, I'm going to go ahead and end the show. Have a great week, everybody.
7: Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye. Good night. Yep. Good night.